And then I think about why is digital technology not applied in healthcare? And I think part of the reason is that so much of it is just bells and whistles. Mm-hmm. It hasn't really impacted, you know, hasn't really changed mortality for somebody who's with heart failure, it hasn't changed their readmission rate, it hasn't changed their stroke, incidence of stroke. So, so much is kind of nice to have stuff, kind of glosses over things, but doesn't really have an impact in healthcare outcomes. Welcome everyone to Reboot Health. I'm your host, Amol Deshpande. This podcast is for anyone wanting to learn more about the digital health ecosystem. Whether you're new to the space and not quite sure how and where to start, or if you're already deep down the rabbit hole and just want to learn from those ahead of you, this podcast is for you. We'll talk with the founders, investors, researchers, and clinicians changing healthcare to understand their trials, tribulations, and successes. In the process, we want to help you to uncover their know-how and also highlight the technology and trends shaping the future of digital health technology. Today, we have Jahangir Apu on the podcast. Jahangir comes two decade, with two decades of healthcare and academic experience as a cardiac surgeon with value investing to focus on his new chapter in life, AIoT Health. AIoT is a syndicate investment fund focused on early stage companies deploying digital technologies to deliver personalized healthcare. Now, in the context of full disclosure, I am an LP in several AIoT ventures, but I wanted to get Jahangir on today not to talk about specific ventures, but rather for him to share his journey, learnings, and thought process on healthcare venture investing. Jahangir, so glad to have you join us today and welcome to the show. Thanks, Amal. Right. So uh, you and I have chatted for, for a year, so I'm, I'm aware of some of the background, but I'd love for you to share a little bit about your background story and in particular, how you landed where you are now, which is at the intersection of technology and healthcare. Yeah, sure. So uh, when I reflect back on, on things I've done, um, it's been somewhat serendipitous. Like it hasn't always, it's definitely not been a straight path that was planned out since I was 15 or something like that. I think it was similar for like why I got into med school and how I got into heart surgery. And when I think about how I landed here, uh, I think there was some serendipity there, but it's, it's always been an, an iterative process where one thing leads to another. So uh, in terms of venture capital investing, in 2019, I was transitioning out of clinical medicine, and I was looking to to see what I was going to do next. And uh, I was looking to you know, continue having impact, even though I'm not holding someone's heart in my hand. And and my tendency is to be is to be thorough in whatever I do in detail. So I kind of made these matrices up of like what I want, what my personal goals are. And I started looking at, honestly, probably 75 different things to get involved with. And I kept refining this matrix of things that would resonate with my personality, uh, with what I'm good at. And I had a lot of coffees with people, was doing a lot of learning. And uh, that eventually led to an introduction to uh, Chen Fong, who you know. Mm-hmm. He's one of the co-founders of uh, Creative Destruction Lab. He invited me to come in as a guest for a day. And I was really vitalized by what was going on. It was a way for me to apply my medical knowledge in a different sphere. I think working as a, uh, you know, I stopped, I stopped operating because of a problem with my neck that I've been battling for a few years. And it became clear that I just couldn't do the physical part of the operating. So I was really still interested in like my expertise was in healthcare and having been at the front lines of mm-hmm. healthcare, been involved in healthcare here in Canada and the US and the UK. And I was looking at like, how do I apply that knowledge, that experience in a different discipline? And one of the things for me as a heart surgeon was like, regardless of how hard I worked, I would sort of help at most two people and their families that day. And I always wondered about, like, how do you scale that? How do you help more people? How do you, like, create bigger impact? Was there something that sort of brought you specifically to digital technology and healthcare? Because, I mean, there's biotech, there's pharma, there's so, so many areas you probably could have gone to. What was the, you know, what was the, was there one magical thing that landed you on digital technologies? I'm just curious. 
Yeah. So uh, I think there's a few things about digital technology that uh, interested me. So if, I think one is the opportunity. So digital technology is used in all different realms of our lives today from what we're doing right now in terms of communication, in terms of retail, in terms of finance, in terms of entertainment. But it's not really been applied to healthcare mm -hmm. very well. Right, and not to much degree. So in healthcare, there's an opportunity to leverage all this knowledge that's already out there and, and apply that rather than reinventing the wheel from, from scratch. So I thought it was a great, you know, now is it, we, we have, sometimes we ask this question in venture investing, like why now, mm -hmm. right? So uh, if we apply digital technology in healthcare, well, finance has, has issues with privacy uh, and security. And they've figured out how to overcome that. And so we can take some of those learnings and apply them to healthcare rather than having to invent them from scratch. So one was the opportunity. And then I think about why is digital technology not applied in healthcare? And I think part of the reason is that so much of it is just bells and whistles. Mm -hmm. It hasn't really impacted, you know, hasn't really changed mortality for somebody who's with heart failure it hasn't changed their readmission rate hasn't changed their stroke incidence of stroke so so much is kind of nice to have stuff kind of glosses over things but doesn't really have an impact in healthcare outcomes but having been at the front lines of healthcare i think you and i can identify those you know what i call those crevices and niches where true impact could be had um, and the third part about digital technology and just as important as everything else really was the instigator was this concept of machine learning as an exponential technology. And I felt super fortunate that twice in my lifetime, I've been able to witness an exponential tech. And uh, so when I started university in 1989, there was this thing called www. And literally nobody knew how we'd be using this technology 30 years later. And, uh, so much had to happen along the way for us to have this conversation that we're having today in terms of developing high definition video cards, wireless internet, having personal computers, all these things. And so I was interested in sort of the singularity university concept of exponential technologies of change, of uh, improvement in the world, of ongoing optimism. And for me, it was really about how do we apply machine learning in a meaningful fashion in healthcare. The one assumption is that machine learning will be here 30 years from now. And so what my interest is uh, in, you know, from the digital aspect was like, how do we help shape that pathway where nobody right now knows how we're going to use it 30 years from now in healthcare? Mm -hmm. So how are we involved in that pathway? How do we help shape that pathway, you know, in in 1989, I wasn't cognizant enough to understand that the internet was going to change the world. And uh, so I have a second opportunity in that. Got it. So those are my sort of high level thoughts on digital <laughs> tech, I think. No, I think they're great. I'm going to sort of ask you, obviously, sort of the machine learning, the video card, all those technologies, as you, as you pointed out, aren't really embedded into the healthcare system. Talk to us a little bit about your learning process when you go from healthcare literally right in sort of the heart of the operating room to now venture investing. How do you, you know, where did you go for your learnings? Who do you speak to? What do you read? Everyone's a little different. I'm curious what your pathway was to kind of get up to speed, if you will, from the operating room where I assume most of your time was spent aortic dissections, which was, I think, I think your specialty focused on keeping up the journals and all those associations. It's a big shift. How, how do you, you know, how did you sort of forge that pathway? Yeah. So, uh, I think you, you, you uh, again, it's iterative. It's one thing leads to another. Um, uh, from a, you mentioned two things. Who did I speak to and uh, reading? Mm -hmm. So in terms of conversations, one of the things I started learning was that conversations really need to be a two-way street. So I was getting introductions to a lot of people for a lot of different reasons, and I didn't really even know what those reasons were sometimes. <laughs> and uh, but the point I was trying to make is that I learned that when, even though we're trying to learn something when we have a conversation, we have to bring something to the table. 
if we're not bringing something of interest to the other side, it's hard to have a, a truly good conversation. So, it, you know, I think it, it it's really about a two-way street. You're out there to learn, but in order to learn, you have to give. You have to actually share something that's also interesting for the other person. And uh, it's this con- this idea that a conversation is like a game of catch. It's a cooperative game where you're throwing the ball back and forth. And if only one person is doing uh, the talking, uh, then uh, you know, then it's not really a conversation. So, and then who did I speak to? I spoke to angel investors. Mm-hmm. I spoke to people who run uh, venture capital funds who are partners in VCs. I spoke to uh, people who are interested in the health tech space, uh, people who previously ran VCs and are now doing different things. And my learning, again, from the conversation point of view is that most conversations, the outcome is an introduction to another conversation. Okay. You know, I have a chat with someone. Someone says, oh, you really need to speak to them all. And, uh, you know, it sort of moves on that way. In terms of reading, I think there were sort of two areas of reading. One is around the venture capital side. So things like, you know, getting into like a good introduction is uh, Jason Kalkanis's Angel, okay. uh, which is a very sort of approachable introduction to uh, venture capital and angel investing. And then the other sort of textbook in, in the field would be, uh, I think, uh, Brad Feld's uh, Venture Deals. And then in, in today's world of digital technology, et cetera, reading is also, you know, listening to podcasts like yours, uh, Amal, right? Uh, and so there's so much out there in terms of how you can acquire information. So listen to lots of podcasts. So that's kind of like the learning and the reading around the venture capital business side. But then I think for me, there was a lot of reading around topics that I was interested in. You know, I read a lot. I read uh, Peter Diamandis' work, Abundance and Bold and the Singularity University type of stuff. Um, Eric Topol's work Mm -hmm. really stood out to me. His book came out in 2019, Deep Medicine. I'd heard him give a talk uh, previously. Uh, so I read about those type of things. I was interested in this topic of longevity. So I read a, a lot around that, which I think is exciting. Um, I think I read books on leadership, on the role of technology, on goal setting, on investing. So I was reading around topics. I've always been reading around topics that interest me. Right. So so, so that's quite a wide breadth, which which I think is you know something that's obviously relevant for venture investing. You really need to sort of you know, figure out how all those data points collect, connect together. I'm curious when you started your learning process, and even now, frankly, are there important skills that you took from clinical medicine that you find sort of accelerates your learning process? And and as kind of a contrary point to that, are there some things that you wish you could get rid of, but that that really are hindering you? Because uh, they they are different areas, at least from from my perspective. You could disagree with that, but and I'd love to hear your your opinion. I, I think clinical medicine. Um, you know, we're taught to do certain things. We're taught to do very well. Um, if you're not doing research, I think you're given a little less latitude than you are for venture investing, where you know sometimes the prize is actually going as wide as you can where no one is, but you have to be right. So I'm just curious how you think about that with respect to your sort of learning process as you're going through this. Yeah. So how, how did I translate going from the operating room to running a venture capital fund? Uh, and like, what are the... If, I always think about like, what are the principles behind the position? It's the positions, the top layer, but like, what are the principles underneath it? So like, if I think about what the similarities are, uh, I think the similar, there's certain things that are specific to the field and there's certain things specific to the person. I think for me, like I've always been driven by the pursuit of excellence and by solving the unknown, like, in medicine, we have a huge amount to learn in the textbook. And then once we get past that mm-hmm. and we get certification, et cetera, there's still so much that's unknown. So I think uh, some people are satisfied with knowing what's known. And then other people are driven to figure out the unknown. It took me a little while, I think, in clinical medicine to realize that both are okay. It's just people are wired differently. There's some people who will let others figure out the unknown, then go to a conference. Once it's widely adopted, they'll learn it and put it into practice and they're comfortable with that. And, and that's okay too. But I was always sort of driven by excellence, I think, in, in whatever I get involved in. 
And, uh, you know, I think in terms of surgery, there's this, especially in heart surgery, there's uh, this concept of clarity of thought. Like you have to make good decisions in high risk yeah. situations mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a timely fashion. And that good decision could start, you know, even in the clinic as to like who to operate on, who not to operate on, how to instill confidence or uh, that type of stuff to like suddenly something happens in the operating room and the heart's falling apart. And, and, um, so, you know, there's a, one of the, you asked about reading. So I like, I like uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee, mm-hmm. who's a author physician. Do you know him? Yeah. Um, and so he has a quote that he says, uh, you know, it's easy to make perfect decisions with perfect information. But in medicine, we're asked to make perfect decisions with imperfect information, right? right? So I think that skill set of having that, this concept that I like to refer to as like being in the eye of the eye of the bullseye, like that clarity of thought of like, how do you make good decisions and how do you make good decisions with imperfect information? Um, Then I think the other thing about, you know, how does surgery relate to venture capital? Well, surgery is very outcome focused. Mm -hmm. Like outcomes matter, results matter, right? It's uh, it, it sometimes can be very binary, and results count. Um, so I think that's same similar in, in venture capital. Is uh, you know what we're doing is connecting capital with impact in healthcare and, and technology, but you know very focused on the fact that results count. No, I was going to ask you, I mean, is, is there anything on the downside that, that you find a, a struggle? I mean, and, and I think part of this is personality, but I'm just wondering whether clinical medicine sort of puts you on a path that sometimes it's hard to get out of. The first struggle from a clinical medicine point of view is uh, identity. I think for so many years, we've kind of woven ourselves into this identity of being a doctor, right? And one of the things for me I had to learn was that that had to be in my background rather than my foreground. Okay can't be the way it cannot be the way that I introduced myself. Otherwise, I just couldn't move forward. Right. So and I think even though as physicians, we all believe we have lots of other hobbies, activities, interests, it's completely woven into what we do. And so I think that was a a hindrance early on. And I figured out how to get over that. I think the other hindrance is uh, probably around uh, imposter syndrome. (laughs) You know, do I like this feeling of do I belong? I think it was challenging for me to go from being an expert in the room. Uh, I can hold a conversation with anybody in the world on aortic surgery to suddenly being in a room with people who, you know, done done this for 20, 30 years. So I think being a newcomer uh, is uh, is humbling you have to be open. But it's also a great milieu for learning if one is open to learning and can use, you know, you and I have decades of experience of learning and how to learn and how to apply that learning. And so one advantage at this time of our careers is that we have this, this, as this, this confidence that we can learn, that we can do well, that we've done it before, that we, we can take it on. That's some, that's some great points. So your learnings, and we're always continuously learning, as you, you correctly pointed out, you know, from your learning so far, when you look at frameworks for startup, is there, is there sort of an overall framework that you can share with us that, that you use, at least at a high level, like, like startup comes to you, what are those, you know, the, the team, the product, the TAN, all those kind of, but just at a very high level, how are you looking at that? And, and really curious is from a healthcare startup specifically, are there things there that really matter? That, that you need to see? Yeah, so on a high level, uh, I would say for me, probably I'm all about start with impact, like being very clear as to which group is deriving the benefit uh, from the product and therefore is incentivized to adopt the product. And you know, there's some buzz sort of buzzwords we use, uh, you know, as, as you'll be familiar, like people talk about, is this a true pain point or is it a vitamin? Right. Yeah right? Like it starts with me about first about the impact of what they're doing. Secondly, team is important. So how do we assess team? Like why are we doing what we're doing? Why venture capital? Like to me, venture capital, the positives of venture capital are that you have really bright people who are looking to solve important problems. 
and uh, they're truly creating value as opposed to shifting pieces of paper around. So with the team, like, you know, I'm interested in, you know, if we think about my framework, we're interested in vision. Are these founders, you know, living in the future or are they providing a vitamin for now sort of thing? Are they, you know, you talk about this, like, are they looking to create a paradigm change and then own that domain, right? Uh, I think uh, Mike Maples talks about, are they, you know, can they be alligators in a puddle? Do they have big vision, right? So I think that's what I would say about the team aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's many other things that we could talk about team. So impact team. Thirdly, maybe technology, like what is their differentiation? And then I think for me also, it's try to identify what their secret sauce is. What is their value proposition? I think every company has it, but it's about elucidating it clearly, specifically, and then building on that that value proposition. And I think once we get past all those things, then I think the uh, the business model is so important. Uh, can they find their tribe? Who's going to adopt their technology and why? How are they going to get that flywheel started? Uh, so. I think that's kind of, I would say, as a, a framework. Gotcha. So uh, m- I want to go a little bit deeper on that. So let's sort of double click. I know you're a mentor at a, a, a number of streams in Creative Destruction Lab or, or CDL is, is often referred to. I don't know how many companies you've seen, but are there common traps that you see early stage founders falling into when you look at these sort of these, these healthcare startups? Are there things that you kind of see repetitively that founders just aren't getting or thinking about? and you know, are there sort of high level advice that you find you're dishing out on a regular basis to these individuals? And maybe that sort of um, complements what you what you said previously, but I'm just curious if we can get more specific if there is anything. Yeah, so it, uh, CDL is a fantastic organization and I've really learned the value of mentoring. It's not so much whether we think a company is, is awesome or not. It's like, how do we help them uh, identify their pain points? How do we help them scale? How do we help them grow and identify where their thoughts can be best put. So it's kind of a really interesting uh, sphere. Maybe if we stick to the healthcare side, yeah. like one of the things that healthcare is very peculiar about is that just helping patients or saving lives doesn't seem to be enough. Uh, we need to, because at the end of the day, the patient is usually not the consumer yeah. of the technology. The technology is, is not the purchaser of the technology, right? So I think in the healthcare sphere, it's about helping founders think about how does their technology, their idea help the payer, whoever's purchasing the product, and what are the payer's priorities? What are their problems? And how can this technology help with the payer's problems? So it's about that product market fit where it's figuring out who has a problem. So it might be the person that you're thinking about going to, your technology is not, your solution is not a priority for them, but there's somebody else who it is a priority for. So finding that and understanding how the company can solve someone else's problems. Got it. I wanna move a little bit from frameworks and get a little bit deeper, and I'm gonna leverage a paper that that you were a co-author on in 2020, I think, and it was, uh... I think the title was Technological Advances to Enhance Recovery After Cardiac Surgery. In that paper, when, and we'll have it posted in the show notes, you mentioned like numerous technologies, like data as a platform, there's 3D printing, there's AI, there's wearables. I mean, it, you've got a plethora of, of stuff embedded in that paper. Can you talk a little bit about some of the main points that you wanted to get out of that paper? And in particular, I'm curious, I know it was published, I think, in a hospital management journal. Was, were you specifically targeting that audience or were you specifically tar- targeting clinicians or researchers? What did you, like, who did you want to kind of read this at the end? I'm, I'm, I'm just it's a little curious when you sort of put this out. Yeah. Uh, so, so that paper is uh, the lead author is uh, Dr. Kevin Lobdell, who's been at the forefront of adopting technology in cardiac surgery. He's a former cardiac surgeon who now runs a nice cardiac ICU. And uh, so in terms of what did we want to get out of that paper, in medicine, it's, 
I think it's a little bit hard for doctors to understand that some of the, our problems can be solved by people who are not doctors. <laughs> and that's kind of like, like, you know, for a heart surgeon to think that somebody knows how to improve heart surgery who's not like a world-renowned heart that's surgeon themselves, like, we don't want to talk to you, you know? <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> that. E even though at the same time as physicians, we know that diversity is important and yeah. diversity of thought is important and we have all these multidisciplinary things, but it's still within like healthcare, yeah. right? So I, I think the idea was to say, hey, we all agree that the bottom line is patient care. And the idea of that paper is how do we improve patient care, patient outcomes, patient experience, and really framing it in the workflow of modern medicine and heart surgery. So in the preoperative phase, in the in-hospital phase, in the post-operative phase, uh, the dis discharge phase, right? So like these are the phases of cardiac surgery. That, that patients go through these phases. And so what are the different technologies that can uh, impact these in, in a positive way? So I think that's kind of like the message that we were trying to get across. Ideally, the authorship would be cardiac surgeons. Okay. It would also be, uh, would also be uh, really, you know, this type of technology is the cardiac surgeon will be the champion, right? The physician will be the champion. But at the end of the day, it's the CEO, it's hospital management that has to bring in the technology for their champions to use, right? So it's a partnership. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's you know partly the reason for the choice of the journals. Gotcha. There's one sentence I, I, I really want, and I want to read it because uh, I think it's, it's bang on, right? And, and we've kind of talked around it. It was near the end of the paper and it goes, technological advances are not intrinsically valuable in and of themselves. Ultimately, they must translate into actual benefits for patients, healthcare providers, and healthcare systems. So I think we talked about that. And I think there's, I've heard from a couple of other founders on the podcast that, you know, you build it and they will come. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen in healthcare. You've talked a little bit about that. For new founders coming into the healthcare space that aren't clinicians, or, or maybe even if you are clinicians, is there certain advice you'd give them to avoid falling into this? Like, is there any sort of specific things that you would encourage them to do early so that they don't have to sort of backtrack because of this problem? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's always your early consumers are so, so important, right? They, they set things up for, for, for the future. So it's about, identifying who wants to adopt this technology yeah. and doing that early and ensuring that you have people who are passionate backing you to adopt this technology. You and I might know that this is a great idea, but if we can't convince other people that this is worth their time and effort because everybody's busy doing other things, if other people aren't excited by it, then, you know, we can invent the light bulb, but it won't get widely adopted if you can't get people interested. So I think then the question becomes, who is the person you should be speaking to? Should it be the hospital administrator who's excited? Should it be a physician? Should it be a, uh, you know, there's a variety of players, right? But it's finding the, r the right players uh, and getting them on board to uh, see the benefit of the technology to them. Do, do you have any thoughts on co-creation with early stage startups? So actively engaging clinicians to step on the team early to see whether they're interested or patients or to your point, administrators. Curious whether you just have any high level thoughts on that. And have you seen it actually out there? Yeah, so seeing a, actually, it's quite interesting, like seeing a lot of, companies that are co-founded by clinicians okay. uh, recently. So, and I think it comes down to this concept of mastery, right? That's as we get out in practice, we do something for 10 years, we get good at what we're doing, and then it's about the next step. And uh, physicians are generally bright, they're innovative, uh, they want to improve things. So I think as they get some mastery of their subject matter, they start thinking of new ideas and, and are coming with, uh, with companies. Um, so I'm seeing it. What was the other part of your question? I'm also curious, like, would you, would you, have you seen 
patients get involved in early stage as 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 co-creators. So, yeah, so they how, may not be owning the yeah, company, but yeah. you know, I'm I'm really curious about how to sort of jump that gap between just building a technology company and building a technology company with impact, knowing who that impact will be on, right? And doing that early. That's absolutely key, right? So I think you asked earlier as well, like, you know, in terms of advice because of to, to startups, because so much so many of them have a technology looking for an application. Correct. Right? Correct. So yeah. having some clinical understanding expertise is so important, but also aligning incentives. Uh, I think clinicians will often say, this would be nice, that would be nice, but are they willing to actually champion yeah. it? Are they, you know, can they understand the value proposition? Where are the dollars coming from? Because usually it means some other dollars need to be foregone somewhere else, right? So it, I think if you're a technologist, definitely need to get clinicians involved to understand the space and understand how it can be meaningfully uh, implemented in that space. And I think first comes customer discovery, speaking to a lot of clinicians, uh, getting a variety of opinions, but then actually partnering with somebody who's got the time, effort, and interest and passion to, to be involved because it's very easy to give opinions <laughs> But it's, an, it's a whole other yeah. thing to have skin in the game and to have your time time involved. Yeah, no, that's, that's great advice. I, I know you're in, you're in Calgary. If you're a non-clinician founder, are there sort of opportunities to, to tap clinicians for early advice? Are you aware of anything or, or patient form? What any suggestions for early founders who maybe don't have a clinical background and don't have anywhere to go? One of the, one of the things I've... Uh, been seeing a mole in, in Canada is that there seems to be a swell of momentum of uh, infrastructure going into the innovation ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a group groups of people, governments are getting involved in terms of supporting the innovation ecosystem. So what we're seeing here in Calgary is there's various startups and accelerators uh, coming uh, 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 that are built in with different focuses, and uh, healthcare is a big focus. So there's uh, programs in Edmonton as well as in Calgary, uh, and and also like we're seeing this worldwide is this idea of taking concepts from the academic labs and commercializing them, and helping to take ideas from lab to from benchtop to actually being a company. So at the University of Calgary, for example, there's uh, something called a Life Science Innovation Hub, which is uh, part of the University of Calgary and helps facilitate that that transfer of adding the business expertise and growing the business side of an academic idea to make it a a commercial enterprise. Um, Something very interesting even at University of Calgary is they've set up a venture philanthropy type of fund where they invest in some of these companies to help them grow and come out of the university to stimulate the local ecosystem. Uh, So I think there's infrastructure, there's money, there's multiple accelerators, incubators that will help grow uh, that, that, and they have expert advisors. I think in in Toronto, there's a lot of, as you're familiar, there's a, there's a, a lot of innovation and we're seeing like, Hospitals, hospital systems have innovation arms, right? right? So we chatted about this. I don't know if I if, if we if we landed on on your thoughts specifically, but I'd love to hear them. Um, given given all this, you know, money and expertise and focus flowing into the health system now, and and there's good reason why you know with COVID nineteen, the mRNA vaccines being moved through telehealth. I mean, you can go on and name a number of things that have really changed over the last, let's say, 12 to 18 months. But where we are now, are, do you, I'm curious, are we at the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning with all this attention being focused on, on healthcare venture? Uh, it's interesting. Never really <laughs> thought of it that way. Um, I, I guess by my nature, I'm an optimist. Okay. So I always think that the world is improving. I think there's a lot of data to prove that the world is improving. And I have no reason to believe that the world will stop improving. So whatever we do today, there'll be another layer tomorrow and and so on and so forth. So, you know, I think what we're at the beginning of right now is super interesting to me. So on this topic is 
in the last century, we have made tremendous, tremendous advancements in medicine. Like literally 120 years ago, if a 22-year-old had appendicitis, that was probably end of life. Mm. Like we just didn't know how to deal with what we would consider the most basic things, right? A look at survival across the globe, average survival is double. So we've made tremendous improvements, and a lot of that knowledge base has come on the back of these elegant, complicated, hard-to-do, expensive things called randomized controlled trials. And that's provided huge amount of knowledge for us. It's like what we know today, like our expectations, et cetera, is built on this robust data set from RCTs. And now that we have that, what is the next layer? The beginning of the next thing, as you suggest, right? To me, it's about personalized healthcare. That's why we run a fund that's focused on the tools that will facilitate personalized healthcare. And what does personalized healthcare mean? It means it's a layer of nuance because with randomized controlled trials, we take 10,000 patients, we treat them with strategy A, another 10,000 with strategy B. 70% survive five years with strategy A, and 55% survive five years with strategy B. And now everybody gets treated with strategy yeah. A. That is this hard, good RCT, level one evidence, guidelines. Everybody with this problem should have strategy A treatment until a new treatment comes out. And then we compare that again to strategy A. But we've already built this huge database of knowledge now over the last century. The next layer of knowledge is about figuring out which patient in strategy B would do better with B, which one in A would do better with B. And, you know, is that based on our genomics? Is that based on our comorbidities? Is that based on environmental factors? Those type of things. So that's where I think, you know, we've made huge inroads in understanding healthcare and now the beginning of the next thing, right? And then there'll be another beginning of the next thing, five, you know, five decades from now. So I don't feel like it's we're ever getting to the end of any, you know, but there's always more to do. I love that answer. That, that, that's a really, I really enjoy that answer and the way you think about that. That's great. Um, so I'm curious around that sort of technology. Let's, let's take a leap off of that, whether it was embedded in your paper or not. Do you have one or two technologies that you're really sort of excited about as applied to healthcare for the next three to five years? I know there are many, but if you had to pick one or two that you think are going to be the most impactful to kind of you know use, use your verbiage from before, what what might they be? And, and obviously three to five years out, so things can change. But I'm curious where your thought process is today. Yeah. So I think we could break this up into maybe areas of medicine and then technology. So for a while, I've been saying that you know I think there's three areas of medicine that are super exciting going forward, and these three areas are because we don't know a lot about them yet. Um, for uh, large parts of medicine, we understand great detail and we'll understand even more in the future. Like we understand a lot about how our heart valve actually opens and closes and how blood flows through the coronary arteries and, and what happens in the heart muscle. And there's more to always learn. The three areas that I think are super exciting that have been, and they're exciting because they've been untapped until now. And so when, when students ask me about like what areas are exciting mm -hmm. to go into medicine, I think everything is exciting. You could do cardiac, you could do GI, you could do nephrology, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of cool stuff everywhere. But in my mind, uh, three area, these three areas are really, number one is neuroscience. Yeah. And uh, that is because until now, the brain has been a black box. Like we've had very rudimentary tools as to how to assess what's going on in the brain. You know, we could do reflexes and do some observational type of stuff. But now with this ability to do CT and MR and functional MR and PET CT and uh, non-invasively do EEG and cerebral oximetry, we have all these tools to understand this black box for the first time. So I, that to me is a super exciting area uh, in terms of the future. Second super exciting area has been long, is longevity. Um, that's kind of the reason I actually got into med school. I only went to med school because I was actually interested in cancer biology. And at that time, there was something, everyone knows what mRNA is today, but right. when I was in undergrad, there was this thing called reverse mRNA. And that was supposed to be the cure for, for cancer. 
And the, the idea of cancer cell is that, you know, on a biochemistry point of view, it's, it's really interesting because it's like the perfect cell. It never dies, right? So once we understand that, and we're understanding now what happens with aging, like what is it that biochemically occurs inside a cell that makes us age? Once we're able to identify that, we can then start thinking about compounds that mitigate aging, right, before you even get to reversing. So reversal. So I think longevity is a super exciting area. And the third area that I, is super exciting is also uh, immuno-oncology. Mm. And uh, there's a t- ton of infrastructure focused on curing cancer across the world. And uh, this concept of how the body's own system can fight cancer is, uh, I think, also a nice, you know, cool area for people to go into. So I think those are sort of three areas that are super exciting in, in medicine. And then what are the tools that are going to facilitate those areas from a technology point of view? Is it going to be the omics? Is it going to be metabolomics and genomics? I think that there's a lot of excitement mm-hmm. there in, in biotechnology. Uh, again, the immuno-oncology field plays into biotechnology. I think machine learning is, uh, is uh, a super interesting technology. Uh, to me, uh, to help deliver that personalized medicine and help deliver uh, knowledge in those three areas. Um, I think with machine learning, what's happened is that we now have this ability to monitor continuous and longitudinal data points, uh, as opposed to medicine, which was previously very episodic. Somebody showed up to the doctor's office and got a physical exam, got a measurement taken, went to a lab and had a specific metabolite measured, right? So now that with all this technology out there that we can actually do these things non-invasively, where we can have continuous measurements of things, people wearing devices at home, what's going to be important is for clinicians to figure out what are the variables that are worth Mm -hmm. monitoring longitudinally and continuously, Versus which which are the ones that are just fine when we do it episodically? Like I'm not sure that we need to measure somebody's thyroid level, you know, every minute right. or seven times a day, yeah. right? But like, what are the variables that actually are impactful that change outcomes that uh, can either predict things that are actionable where you can change the outcome? Yeah. No, I think those are great points, and it, it leads back to what you're saying, which is there are layers upon layers that we need to uncover, right? But in in terms of healthcare innovation, so yeah, you solve one problem, another one <laughs> rears its ugly head. Um, so so that's great. Um, I, it's it's a bit of a hot topic. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Is is just sort of the innovation ecosystem in Canada, um, as as applied to sort of health technology, and maybe your you know your journey over the last twelve to eighteen months. Do you have any thoughts about how we, as a kind of a Canadian ecosystem, as, as sort of the community players, could help foster a little more innovation around startups? Like, are there are there stumbling blocks that you see really around sort of Canadian early stage startups that that unfortunately don't need to be like that 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 we might be able to do as a as a community to resolve? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. So, if I think about that. You know, the cream always rises to the top. So the best companies, the best entrepreneurs, the best technology ideas, they'll do just fine. Uh, and that's fine. And that's great. And they'll be huge successes. So really to answer that question, it's more like, how do we increase the size of that funnel? Mm. How do we take uh, companies that are not right now the best and make them to you know, to this point where they can own a domain, where they can have big impact, right? And so, what are the things that will help? It's almost like from good to great, right? <laughs> right. The great ones are going to do fine, but how do we take the good ones and make them great? And uh, I've been learning and appreciate a lot of the uh, role of mentorship, which I didn't mm. know about as much anyway before. So this concept of Having people who've been there, done that, help uh, younger people is, I think, very powerful. 
again, it has to get down to alignment of incentives. Like, why do people want to do things? Right. Um, and uh, is it because they want to contribute? They want to work with young, bright people? Is it monetary incentives, et cetera? Let's try to figure out those things. But uh, I think mentorship is, uh, is a big one. I'm not sure. Like, everyone always talks about money. And there seem to be like two two sort of sides. Like you need more government grants and more yeah. things like that. And then other people feel well. If you get a lot of non-dilutive funding, it prevents you from thinking big and from from proving your problem and from uh, finding true product market fit and keeps you sort of in a in a cycle for a long time that's not fruitful. So I don't know if it's money, but I do think that there is a lot of good infrastructure in Canada support. Uh, you know, different uh, things to stimulate in, in innovation. For example, even in Alberta, there's the Institute of Healthcare Economics, which is a not-for-profit association that does some really amazing work with startups now where they can uh, do economic analysis to see the impact that uh, their technology will have on healthcare and in different healthcare systems across the world. So I think these, and then there's various uh, programs on, on digital health in Canada. Part of the problem in Canada is, is the, uh, the fact that we have a great idea. We still need to sort of go abroad to actually grow a business. Um, it's hard to adopt in Canada with, this, with the current incentives for the payer system. Because at the end of the day, the budget is fixed for any province. So if the province were to adopt a new technology, it has to cut something else. Yeah. 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 And I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear you, to hear you say, cause I, I would, I would agree with you around the capital piece. I did some sort of back of the envelope numbers and it really shocks me is that certainly for last year, anyway, 2020, that the, our healthcare venture spending as a percent of healthcare that we spend in the country, we spend twice as much on venture spending in healthcare per capita. In Canada, as we do in the U.S., and four times as much as they do in Europe. So, it suggests that you're right. We we don't have a capital issue. There's something else going on to getting us going. So, but I think that that's the easiest thing for people to say is we just need more capital. I'm not sure that that's correct anymore. So I found that just really interesting. You know that 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 reminds me of something that was I was thinking about a year ago. So I was like, I was noticing that there's a lot of startups coming out of uh, Israel. Mm. And, I, and in healthcare, and I was wondering, like, why? Like, what is it about Israel that it seems so many different startups come out of Israel, right? And uh, so as I was speaking to some of these entrepreneurs from, uh, from Israel, I was surprised that a few of them told me that they think it's that the time that they spend in their uh, military service, the compulsory service, that apparently... 95% of people who go into it aren't doing anything with weapons in the army and things, but it's about service to the country. So you have to work on a problem. And okay. so there's this, and there's support for it. And so there's this infrastructure to go solve problems, right? Interesting. And this time, like what's, what's important for the country and let's go solve problems. So that was, I wasn't expecting that answer when I was speaking to uh, founders from, from Israel. And, but there's, to me, it seems that there's a disproportionate number of, you know, really successful startups yeah. coming out of Israel. Yeah, and I think that that's across a number right. of technology and fields. There has to be a there has to be a reason why. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. I think that's a great point. So something to really think about. So, so mindful of time, we're coming to the end. The 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 one final question. I know you're passionate. I think I've heard you talk about this once, um, but but I'd love to hear you sort of a more detailed answer um, if you could. So as you know, we're all we're all trying to innovate in the healthcare system. We're trying to get patient better patient care, provider experiences. Um, uh, you know, this is called reboot health um, for a reason. But I am curious to ask you: is if you could ensure that one thing from our current health system, from let's just call it 2020, remains unchanged as we move into the future, what would that be, and why? One thing from a current health system, um, whether it works very well, whether you like it, whether you think it's useful, it doesn't. I'm just, yeah. what, what, what can't we lose? When I think about Canadian, what I think about Canadian health, and when I talk to people from other places, 
Like I've spent some time in the U.S. I've mm. worked in the U.K. And I would say the one thing we want to keep is this concept of providing first world care. Uh, so that when care is actually received in Canada, it's actually of a very, the average care is actually of a very high quality. So if you're going to have coronary artery bypass surgery done mm -hmm. anywhere in Canada, almost certainly you're going to get a high quality operation. I, I, so the issues may be around access and care, maybe around, you know, how are we the early adopters or not, right? How do we get the newest stuff right off the bat, that type of stuff? But the thing that I'd want to keep is the fact that people in Canada get really good care. Mm -hmm. yeah. they, they, and especially for emergency yes. care, it's, it's really good. Like the infrastructure, the support structures for a country that, that's so big, the population so diverse. And, you know, yes, we don't have care in very small centers. We have to, you know, transfer patients to the bigger center. But that leads to more expertise and better care because you have higher volume repetition. You have more sophisticated uh, clinicians. You have nurses who only deal with this particular neurology problem, and they can take really good care of a patient who's got that problem. So I think overall, this is still Canada has a great healthcare system to be a participant in, and that when you get care, it's really, really good. Fantastic. I love it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great answer. Um, so if people want to stay in touch with you, Jahangir, if they want to find out what AIOT Health is doing, how do they, how do they reach out? What's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, I'm pretty accessible. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, our website's aiothealth.ca. Um, I'm not very active on Twitter, but my handle on Twitter is at uh, Jahangarapu. Uh, so. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reboot Health. I hope you found it insightful. Please join us again for our next guest as we continue to explore the fascinating changes that will take our health system into the digital age. Until then, stay well and stay safe.